I'm David McGee, and this is the Mayo Lab Podcast. Welcome to the Mayo Lab Podcast. I'm David McGee, and with me is Alexis Lee. Happy to be here. All right, Alexis. You know, over the past year, um, I've been in schools all over the country, really, and schools have invited me in to talk about substance misuse and mental health. But, you know, a crazy thing has happened. Um, They invite me in to talk to the students, but soon it's the parents asking questions. It's the parents who are saying, things have changed so much. How do I help my children navigate this mental health substance misuse crisis? And that's how the Mayo Lab evolved. That's why we're here, you know. And um, I'm thankful to have you along for this journey. Uh, when when we were launching the Mayo Lab at the University of Mississippi, um, which was really, you know, focused on delivering content like this for parents and education in schools for students, for navigating mental health and substance misuse issues. I said, hey, look, if we're going to do this, I need one thing. I need the help of Alexis Lee. And uh, I'm so glad you're going to be on this journey with us. It's been such an incredible journey so far. And I think what we're trying to do is take the silos of information that exist in the ecosystem and bring them to one place. This is something that's never been done before. And why not it? Why can't it be us? Why can't we be the first to do it? And so I think the passion and the mission behind making this accessible for parents is at the heart of what we're doing. Why not us? That's a great point. Uh, What I've heard from parents, it doesn't matter whether I'm in Texas or New Jersey or North Carolina, they say we need a place that we can all come together, that these issues can be discussed in the range of sleep to social media to stronger marijuana to, you know, counterfeit pills. We need a place that we can bring all of this together, that we can tune into um, to really begin this journey and learn how to help our students. Um, You know, what's interesting, I think it would help the audience know a little bit more about you. Like, what Alexis... um, you know, as we embark on this journey, help uh, tell me a little bit about what's your what's your story and what what calls you to this type of work in messaging. So, for the most of my life, I've been an athlete and I played volleyball um, in college here at Ole Miss. I graduated in 2019, um, and most of my life, I was taught, and all my life as an athlete, you you're taught how to run drills. You're taught the best form to work out in so you don't hurt yourself. You're taught how to fuel your body. But you're really not taught how to have mental health conversations. You're not taught how to take care of the mental side of the game other than being mentally strong. And so I came to college in the year 2016. It kind of all accumulated for me. And I had a best friend that passed away. And then I had a career-ending injury that happened. And I remember the very moment that I realized what was going on. I just had a really hard last year. I, you know, had misused alcohol. I didn't want to get out of bed some days. You know, it's mm. it was hard. And I remember the conversation I had to have with my parents to tell them that my career was over. And they looked at me so lovingly and said, it's going to be okay. You know, there's so much more for you. And volleyball doesn't define you. Mm. And it makes me emotional today to talk about it. But it was in that moment that I realized that I could learn how to be mentally strong and mentally con- like health conscious and how to take precautions in that way. So 
I spent the next ever since 2016 learning about mental health, how to take care of myself, how to, you know, share that wisdom with others. And that's really why I'm here. I love to have conversations to give others tools to, um, you know, be people that they want to be and live mm. the life they deserve. Oh, so setting the stage, the Mayo Lab podcast is uh, a production of the William McGee Institute for Student Well-Being at the University of Mississippi. And that institute, of course, is named after my late son, William, um, who died of an accidental drug overdose uh, shortly after um, graduation from college. He'd been an honors college student. Um, he'd been a track athlete in in college and in high school and excelled in so many ways, but he suffered from uh, substance use disorder and a lot of anxiety and depression that he self-medicated. And ultimately, I found him dead, you know. <clears throat> but what I tell everybody is don't feel sorry for us because we had another son who suffered from substance use disorder and is now, um, after treatment, successful in 10, 11 years of recovery. I've had my own journey. We've had a daughter who's turned her life around um, through a battle with eating disorder, and it's much like what you're talking about, Alexis, facing the challenges but realizing it's either going to break you if you let it, but if you can really – we can break the stigma and people can take that first step of uh, – young people can be able to share, hey, I'm struggling. Right. And we can see them and hear them. We've had a lot better chance of getting them into help. And it's much like what you're talking about, Alexis. You know, when you're when you're feeling that way, it's either going to break you or if we can help people learn, young people, students, teens, learn how to take that first step by breaking the stigma that went often Help is just like a little uh, fingertip away. It's teaching them how to reach out for that. And it's just like what you did telling your parents, which is what our daughter did with us. She finally understood enough to say, hey, what I'm facing is real and I need some help. And the Mayo Lab podcast is uh, a part of the Thomas Hayes Mayo Lab within the University of Mississippi. And I must say at the beginning as we launch episode one. Thomas Mayo is a young man who I knew and knew well, and he died of an accidental drug overdose uh, just less than a year ago. And he had come and sat with me on my porch um, when he decided to get help. He was much like my son, William. He was shy and uh, suffered a little bit of anxiety, and he self-medicated, and he got in over his head with substances, and he'd come to me. Um, asking for some tips when he was a junior in college. And we had decided sitting together on a porch, you know, he's like, I need to go get help. I want to be better. And he took that step and he did go get help. And, you know, the thing about recovery is it's not always just this straight line up. I wish it was. But it involves humans and it involves a disease, and it's often more complicated than that. Often, you know, it's an up and down road for many. And what's happened is it's become so much more punitive because before we had fentanyl, right, maybe somebody relapsed and they felt bad about it, but they could still have breath and get back up on their feet the next day and take that next step and continue their journey. In this era of fentanyl, where things have changed so much, what happened to Thomas Mayo, who was a junior at the University of Mississippi, um, 
you know, he relapsed. And unfortunately, he gets a counterfeit pill that has fentanyl in it, and it takes his life. And so the Thomas Hayes Mayo Lab results, and it lies within the William McGee Institute at the University of Mississippi. And it's our storytelling arm that brings you this podcast and the work we do in schools. And so it's exciting, Alexis, to get this podcast started. And episode one, we've got a fantastic guest lined up. Yeah, so Zach Clark, many of you probably know him from ABC's The Bachelorette, where he publicly addressed his sobriety on national television, which I don't think in the history of that show has that ever been done before. So props to him for doing that. He used this platform then to raise awareness about important mental health and addiction issues. And I just know that this conversation is going to be an inspiration to so many. I can't wait, Alexis. Let's get this conversation started on the Mayo Lab podcast. The Integrative Life Network was created as a family of intimate, trauma-focused treatment centers for mental health, substance use, and intimacy disorders. With locations in Nashville and Chattanooga, Tennessee, Oxford, Mississippi, and Boulder, Colorado, the Integrative Life Network's specialized programs aim not just to treat the problematic behaviors you can see, but also the underlying trauma that's driving that behavior. If you feel like your mental health and behavior around substances, pornography, or sex is becoming unmanageable, it may be time to seek help. Call the experts at Integrative Life Network today for a free phone consultation to see if they have a program that may be right for you. They work with most major insurances on an out-of-network basis and have a full continuum of inpatient programs from two-week intensives, 30-day residential options, to extended care programming. Talk to an admissions specialist today at 615-610-5399 or email them directly at info at integrativelifenetwork.com and see our website at themayolab.com for more information. So, Alexis, you know, um, we have this big idea, right? We're going to launch the Mayo Lab podcast, and it's going to go where no podcast is gone, we dream. You know, it's going to create content for parents and educators, really delving into how do we help students find and keep the joy they want and deserve. So we have this big idea, and we're going to scour the world for the perfect guest. And in our mind... We're going to bring all these people together and just go through this full checklist. And when we finally arrive on the one perfect guest out of all that uh, criteria, we'll bring them on to the very first episode, except it, it turned out to be pretty easy, right? Honestly, the easiest decision we've made. There was just one person. We end up with one. It's Zach Clark. Welcome to the Mayo Lab podcast. You know, I've done a few of these things, and that might be the nicest introduction I've ever gotten. So let's let's party, let's party. I love that. Uh, hey, it, 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 it like like I, I kid you not, Zach. 
That that's not even buttering you up. I mean, I'd find some other things to say, but we we're going to go through, we're going to scour the country, and we have this checklist, right? In Zach, we want, you know, we really think it it should be somebody in recovery. We think it it's even best if they do some work around recovery. And and maybe they're also trying to get to know college students and or teens. And guess what? You do all of those. So, like, first of all, let me ask you, Zach. Like, I think the thing that clinched it, why there was, were no other contestants for the first guest on this podcast, why it was just you. It, it, last year, you go out and do this college tour at several college communities throughout the country. Let's start there. I mean, what were you thinking and why do you go do that? Yeah, the college tour was really, um, I don't know, that was the brainchild. I, I just remember early last year, I was kind of sitting around. Look, I've been working in behavioral health care for 11 years now. I, I feel like I've seen it all, right? And we, we, we continue to see, obviously, the suicide numbers and the overdose numbers just skyrocket. And I continue to bang the drum and scream at anyone that'll listen to me. And, you know, last year I was, I was, I found myself sitting there. Um, the news had just broke around Katie Meyer, who was a, a player on the Stanford women's soccer team taking her own life, which was just, you know, devastating. Uh, and then there were a couple more that followed her. And I just, I said to myself, like, I was screwed up in college, but I, I, I never got there. And I was a college athlete and, I need to know what's going on. Like we need to find out what's going on with these kids on college campuses. So we threw it together pretty quickly. And, and really the spirit of that trip was we wanted to do research. We wanted to connect. We wanted to talk to the people who were on the front lines. And, and what we found coming out of that is, is kind of what we knew, right? Like these college age students are desperate for connection they're desperate for resources to f- go where you can speak to, you know, someone who's been where you've been before. Um, and they're desperate to know that they're not alone. Um, so it was a, it was a crazy trip. We basically, we hit six colleges in six days and I was tired at the end, but I was inspired. Yeah. I think they, you know, the line we, we often use when people are stu- suffering from mental health issues, substance misuse, eating disorder, depression, you know, they need to be seen and they need to be heard. And I think I feel like sometimes, I mean, I did it as a parent. Uh, so many students I get to engage with, I see the same thing happens. They're, they're not seen and heard. And we spend a lot of time as adults telling them how they should feel, what they should do. I, I'm just so appreciative of you recognizing because it all starts, you know, in a conversation, as we know, but you got to get out among them. You have to be with them, you know. I'm I'm sitting here laughing because I'm a total jock. I played three sports growing up. Okay, what 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 three? What three? F- f- football, basketball, baseball. Okay, all right, go ahead. And I love the coach that would get in my face and say, "You suck," right? Like for some reason that resonated with me. Like you need to do this, and I loved like that concrete in your face feedback. Right. Right. And when I started doing this work 11 years ago, I took that same approach. Like, we're going to work harder. We're going to hustle. We're going to be gritty. <laughs> and, like, I'd have guys and girls looking at me like, 
yo, I don't know who you are, but you need to like calm down. And <laughs> 11 years later, I just, I have found that in dealing with folks who, and I, and, and in the work I do with parents, this is one of the main things I talk to them about is like, we all know that the, the answer you're trying to get to, but if you tell your child what to do, it's a lot less likely for them to do it than if you're going to ask them questions and allow them to have agency over the decision that they come to. And it's really hard for parents. And, and in my work at Release Recovery, where we, we, we work with a lot of families, you know, we kind of take on the role of, of the parents, right? Because we are their caretakers now. And I work with my team all the time around like, mm. ask questions, make sure they feel heard, make sure they feel validated. We can still say no, but um, it needs to be no with love and no with a smile and no with like letting them, them understand that our, we, we just have your best interest in mind. It's, it's really hard. The communication thing for me in this work has been, has been one of the toughest things to learn. And now that I have it, I try to give it away. Oh, right. So you founded Release Recovery in 2017. Tell us a little bit about the what's the focus of it. I mean, there's a lot of treatment centers in a, you know in a country. Uh, you you're doing some special work. You just noted around the family. I mean, talk to us a little about that. Yeah. So uh, my so I got sober August of 2011. You know, I was a heroin addict, smoking crack, cocaine. Um, you know, really what was in it at the end of my run and. I had a family that that never gave up. I mean, it got it got wild for a minute. You know, my parents weren't necessarily talking. My brother wanted to beat my ass, like all the stuff that comes with, you know, active active sub- substance use disorder. And you know, I I got I went to treatment for four and a half months, and I came out. And I moved into a sober living, so I was kind of in the container for about seven and a half months. And I came out of that experience knowing two things: I fucking love people. Excuse my language. Like I yeah. love. People. Speak the truth. And, that's all right. You know, I love people. Um, I caught this bug, like this recovery bug. And I, you know, I love business. I love like projects, right? And so mm. I went, I worked for another guy for about five years when I first moved to New York City. And then, you know, as it, as it goes for someone like myself, I made the decision to kind of go out on my own. And in 2017, we started Release Recovery, which you know, it's a, it's a tough elevator pitch, but but essentially we're a full service recovery organization organization focusing on you know mental health and substance use disorder. Uh, so we have sixty five highly structured beds uh, throughout New York City and Westchester County, and then we also do a hot a lot of like high touch, high level mm-hmm. intervention work, consultation work, work with families, and so we're really working with families at all at all stages of the recovery process. So like before their wow. child is in treatment, when they're in treatment, when they come to us after treatment. And then we hope to, you know, have them become ambassadors and fly our flag wow. and be a part of our community. So wow. it's been wild, it's been wild. And I'm just so blessed to be able to do what I do. I don't feel like I ever work, honestly. Yeah, You know, I, so I liked your honesty earlier. That's the thing about you that I've heard is you're you. And that's, I think, what people like the most. And that's, I think, why you can make a dent in this tough old world with this work. So I'll be transparent with you and say, uh, when I first learned about you, um, 
a couple of years ago, uh, people were telling me about the good work you did. And what I recall is, look, I mean, you 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 really burst on the scene, I guess, in 2020 when you received the final rose on ABC's The Bachelorette. And yeah. I think what was interesting in that, Zach, is you used that platform, you know, to address your sobriety on national television, which was a pretty big deal. Um but even then, I'm like, you know, what's really going on with him? And a friend that we have in New York, a mutual friend, told me, they said, let me tell you what, Zach is the real deal. <clears throat> and he just he used that as a platform to launch into all this kind of dog with a bone passion, you know? Yeah, I mean, look, that experience was wild being on national television. I acknowledge and can lean into the fact that a lot of people know who I am because of that experience. And, you know, the love and the romance aside, you know, I'll share this story with you guys. Like, it was kind of the day of filming when I knew I was going to get real about um, my story, you know, and I knew that that was going to happen to one way or another. And I remember the producers kind of like talking to me, talking me through it. And I kind of had to stop them and say, like, guys, you don't understand. Like, this is just who I am. So just like you talk to people about your life, I'm going to do the same thing. And I need to lean into that because I I don't know who's going to see this. And I need to lean into that for myself because this is my truth, Mm. right? And, And what has come back to me from that experience and in people kind of seeing me out in the world, continuing to share my story is a lot of love, a lot of hope. And a lot of people saying like, what do, you know, what do we, what do we do next? And I think as it relates to family members and the work I do today, one of my big goals in life is to kind of break down the stigma around mental health and and substance use disorder. And so what I've tried to do is really show people that this life is not a punishment. Because mm-hmm. when I sit a young guy down or a young girl down, and they're 15, 30, three months sober, and I'm sure you had this experience with your son. Well, how do I date? How am I gonna go to the football game? Oh, how am yeah. I gonna do this? Oh. And and a lot of that shit's fueled by the parents mm-hmm. because of oh. their perception of what they want their child right. to be. Um, and it keeps families sick. So mm-hmm. what I've tried to do with all that is really show people that like my life is I wouldn't trade it for anyone else's. And I don't think about drugs and alcohol today. So, you know, the parents, they mean well, like I meant well as a parent and because we want so much for our children. Um, but it's interesting. Like I, I tell people all the time, like, look, they say, I'm sure it's hard to get teenagers and college students into substance treatment. I go, oh, my gosh, it's like a knife fight in the street, right? And I go, and once you get the parents out of the way, <laughs> then you got a fighting chance. Uh, I mean, I got messages coming in today, a parent. I mean, they, they want to frame it. They want to believe anything, but they struggle. That's why I think it's so important that people like you, I was in a school in Jackson, Mississippi uh, just last week, and I had a classroom and I, I asked them, I'm like, what, what makes the biggest difference? Help us understand. And they said, storytelling. It's storytelling when we can hear others share what they went through. So for you, Zach, I mean, you, you, you talked earlier about being a, an athlete and uh, you were an athlete in college. I mean, this wasn't just a high school thing, but your addiction, was it, was it ongoing then? It, w- when did it really start for you? 
Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot out there, right? Is it genetic? Is you know, can you kind of like catch an addiction? Um, and for me, I think the first time I took a sip of beer, I knew that I loved it, mm. right? Like I, I didn't have this like white light experience because I, I wasn't like a super awkward or whatever kid. Like I, just, I drank the beer and I was like, this is awesome. You know, and so like as that progressed, I showed up on college campus and I, I kind of felt like I had a black belt in drinking and a black belt in partying because I had partied my whole way through high school. Right. So I really wore it as a badge of honor that not only am I going to, you know, carry on the way that I want to carry on, but I'm going to bring a bunch of people, a bunch of people with me. And, you know, it's one of the biggest regrets I have in life is kind of like in college, you know, and look, man, like the leading cause of death on a college campus right now is suicide. Right. You know, there are people overdosing left and right. None of that stuff was out, none of those, that information was out there 10 years, 10, 15, 6, 18 years, or whenever mm -hmm. I was in college, right? You work hard, you played hard. And so I think I knew deep down inside that I had an unhealthy relationship with drugs and alcohol. Um, I'll never forget the first time I ever did cocaine. I was a junior in college and I woke up the next morning and the first thing I thought about is how upset my mom and dad would be if they knew. And that guilt, like that just mm. guilt. And, um, but I went back out the next night and did it. Right. Right. So like as much, as much as like love is important and all that stuff, like I think for a family listening, like, yeah, you can mean well, you can love your child. You can, you can do everything that you think is right. There's no playbook. And, I had a beautiful family. I had a beautiful home. I mm. partied my ass off in college because that's what I wanted to do. And that's what, that's what made me feel good. Um, but the college campus has changed. There's no doubt about it since I've been there. Look, I, I tell people, Zach, you know, in, in like my son, William, I mean, he ran track, was in the honors college, graduated and went into treatment. And unfortunately, you know, he died for, of an accidental overdose. But I have another son who nearly died on a college campus, and he woke up from a coma uh, from a, a accidental overdose, and he's now 10, 11 years sober. And then we had a daughter who battled eating disorders, uh, an eating disorder in college, and she's now in recovery. And I say, like, I mean, just as you said, the hope is real. But however, things have changed, and it it's different even – you're a lot younger than me, but what I faced and then what you faced where they are today, particularly around counterfeit pills and counterfeit pills with fentanyl, I mean, uh, the, the stakes have changed so much. Had fentanyl been around when I was using drugs, I wouldn't be here. Mm. That's just a fact of my existence. Um, I was, you know, I was using IV heroin. I was in Camden, New Jersey. Like I was, I wasn't checking anything. Like I was just trying to get the next one in me. And, mm. uh, you know, I, I don't know what we need to do. And going back to like language and communication, I don't think yelling and screaming and telling people they have to learn about fentanyl, they have to, you know, speak up and, and share their experiences is going to be helpful. But I do know that guys like like me and you and what you're doing down there um, with the, the center you've opened and the things that we try to do and this thing shoulder to shoulder is going to be 100% necessary because if we're at 100,000 mm. deaths now and, and you know, 75, 80% of them are opiates and then probably another 75, 80% of that number is, is, is fentanyl, um, it's, it's really scary to see 
where we're going. We had a case up here in Westchester about three weeks ago where a kid was in a high school class and hit their vape and whatever they had bought was laced with fentanyl and they overdosed right there in the class and uh, the teacher had to Narcan him and the kid made it. But like people think this this is bullshit. Yeah, and they think yeah, it's bullshit, yeah. and you've and you've lived it, you know. Oh. And like, oh, I read your book, man. That stuff was Thank inspiring. You. Just to and, oh. and the authentic authenticity and and realness that you wrote and you laid it on the line, man. Like, I Thank I want to be just like you when I grow up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, okay, now you're giving me a compliment. I mean, and but you know what? I appreciate that, and and used to be, and you 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 will appreciate this. There was a time when I was early in recovery that I would almost be so embarrassed by that that I couldn't accept that compliment. But I I think that I have to accept it and wear it because it takes a village. And I appreciate that. The thing about you is when that mutual friend we have in New York was telling me about you, they were on fire. They like, you got to get together with Zach Clark. So I look at this as a, you know, it's going to take a village to do this. The work you do in New York and nationally, the work we do in Mississippi in the Southeast and nationally. I think the more of us that care so much, particularly about that student beating heart and really reach them, we've got to come together and try to, you know, get, get at the round table, so to speak, so that students across this country have real advocates putting their minds and energies together to help them find a way out of this, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the landscape unfortunately is is shifting. It sounds like with your two sons um, and congrats to yeah, um, thank you. your son on 11 years. That's, that's awesome. 10, 11 years. Um, mm. I think the landscape, the landscape has changed recently, unfortunately, which is it's not just people that are affected by substance use disorder that are dying. It's people on college campuses that are trying drugs for the first time. Right. Yes. They're, they're, they're showing up in Mississippi from Westport, mm-hmm. Connecticut, you know, yes. and they're going out to their first party and someone's putting a powder in front of them. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, I know my mom and dad will be mad. I know I don't want to do this, but I just want to fit in. So I'm going to do this line yeah. of cocaine or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And that's how we're losing folks. So um, the problem is, is only getting worse. And, and, and I don't know, you would know better than me, but the thought of sending a kid to college right now has got to be terrifying. Mm. I mean, it just has to be. Well, statistically, you know, um, I've seen some research that, you know, um, students arrive on a college campus anywhere in a country. Uh, often they will try a new substance, Zach, within the first three weeks for just what you said. They're, they're out of their element, right? People use substances to change how they feel. They're uncomfortable. They're, they want to fit in. They're uncomfortable, and so they're often likely to make an alignment. And uh, the deal is, though, if we're going to recognizing that, we got to get upstream where we're having more of an impact, where they they can really develop that needed emotional intelligence in middle school and high school. So perhaps they come out of high school more fully um, understanding who they are and what they face. And I think then we can reduce those odds. Right now, to be honest, it, it is it is a knife fight in the street because. They don't fully understand what they're against. And frankly, I don't think their parents even really understand what they face when you take in everything in the full spectrum that impacts them. Social media, they're sleep deprived. There's counterfeit pills. Marijuana is three to 400% stronger. It, it, there's so much that it, 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 there, there's a cliche that sticks around that's called a perfect storm. It, it honestly is that, you know. 
Yeah, it's 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 scary. There's no other there's no other way to to put it, and it's hard for the parents. And and honestly, I think it causes a lot of parents to look at their own behaviors. I mean, like when I I lead I lead a family group every other week for, uh, over here at Release, and you know I always kind of tell the parents like, look, there's no playbook on this thing. Hmm. Your kid is your drug. Right. Yeah. And like, there's actually a study. I was talking to a colleague this morning going on at Texas Tech around the way that um, our brains react. Right. And so like, if you take the, if you take the, uh, the addict, right, or the identified patient and you show them a picture of drugs, you know, their brain, the dopamine, they're going to light up in a, in a certain mm-hmm. way. And then if you take the parent and you show them a picture of their child, their brain is going to let it light up the same way that they're, child's does when you show them a picture of the drugs and there's just not enough out there for for the families right now you know and because Uh they're not the ones utilizing the drugs they're like well i don't have the problem Mm -hmm. just send my kid away i'm going to send them spend a boatload of money and Mm -hmm. someone else is going to fix them Mm -hmm. hi i'm david mcgee now more than ever before Parents need better information about the challenges facing their children. What sorts of issues to expect and when, and the warning signs to look for. From anxiety and depression to addiction, eating disorder and loneliness, students and their families are facing a mental health and substance misuse epidemic that requires new guidance. My new book, Things Have Changed, What Every Parent and Educator Should Know About the Student Mental Health and Substance Misuse Crisis, offers a clear roadmap for helping students find the joy they want and deserve. Head over to themayolab.com to sign up for our newsletter and find a link to pre-order my new book. And everyone who signs up for our newsletter and pre-orders a copy of Things Has Changed will receive a digital copy of my expanded student toolbox. Visit themayolab.com today. You are listening to the Mayo Lab podcast with David McGee. Now, back to the episode. It, it the impact, to be honest, and as you noted in my book, I, like I don't, I, I tell people, I've had some folks say, like, you, you, <laughs> you're not to blame. I said, no, I'm not to blame. However, there, there is no denying that when I was regularly reaching for drinks at five o'clock on, and my children who adored me saw that it had impact just as my son today who's 10 11 years sober tells me being able to look at a sober person has impact on him the same way to blame no but as you note really being able to look in the mirror as a family as parents to think like what are we doing here are we obsessed by changing how we feel with substances and if we are it's unreasonable to expect that our children will adopt any different behavior well i just I mean, the thing I think about when you're when you're talking, David, is like the fact that you are a successful male doing the work that you're doing is just so inspiring because 90% of the time, the moms will show up, the moms will, mm. you know, put in the work, but the dads don't want to talk about it. You know, the dads don't want to be honest about what they've been you're through. Right. Just the stuff that you shared in that book, man, and, and the mm. work you've done in your own relationships and your own recovery. I mean, it's next level. And, you know, you could go out and have a business dinner with acquaintances. They're not going to know you're sober. And then they find out after the fact, they're like, holy shit, maybe, maybe I could. Maybe I can do Maybe that. I could. 
yeah, maybe I can do it, right? I mean, that, and that's my big, like right now, like what I'm trying to do, and it sounds so cheesy, but like make this thing look cool. Like oh. make it look cool, you know? Like I think it's working. What we got to do is, you know what's fun? It's so interesting you say that because, Alexis, like I'm sitting here talking to Zach and it almost sounds like a, a joke that I'm going to say this because he's been on national television, uh, multiple episodes, but I still think he is making it look cool, and we got to get we got to help him pull the accordion to get across America. It, not that he needs that help, but but it's so needed. I think to get that message in front of students that they can from the person they can relate to, you know. Oh yeah, Zach, you posted a photo on Instagram a while ago, and it said "sober, not bored." And I was <laughs> like, "Yeah, like let's talk about that. Like you don't have to sit in your dorm room. You don't have to not go to the party. You don't have to not go to dinner. Like you can do these things. You can still have fun." And like I was a college athlete also, and I remember thinking, "Well, these are my two cho- two choices: is go out or be alone." And it's like. No, let's talk about it. There's third, fourth, fifth options you can do. Yeah, that's that's one of the beautiful things that has come from um, the college tour is we have we were able to make some connections on college campuses with um, you know students that are that are choosing not to drink and do drugs and are choosing to prioritize their mental and physical health and they are starting to to make impact and then even here at release like we've we've helped to launch a lot of men and women back to college and then having them come back and share you know with us about their college experience has just been wow uh it's been incredible and and it's like my lived experience is that getting sober is not really about what i'm giving up it's about what i'm gaining it's about what i'm taking back right and I I can share that, you know, like this past weekend I was at a wedding and it was, it was pretty uptown. It was a New York City wedding. I knew this because I knew a lot of people in the room, 50% of the people there are sober. I know what brought all those people together. Now, wow. if you look at, if you look at a picture of this thing online, you're thinking these people are partying, they're having the mm-hmm. time of their lives. Holy shit, how come I didn't get an invite? You know, like it looks like a like a pretty mm-hmm. awesome time. But I know the truth behind that picture. I know the truth behind all that is that half those people wouldn't be there if they didn't find find recovery. And it's a fine line, man, because like a 19-year-old kid telling him that he's got to get sober in the middle of his college experience. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to deprive them of that like time in their life that you know, you look forward to so much as a young, as a young kid, but there's gotta be a way to inspire these college Mm -hmm. students to have a good time. Right. Mm -hmm. Without blacking out every night. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, I ask students, that's such a great point. So many students I get to engage with who are really struggling with substances, I'll eventually ask them, Hey, um, but let me just ask you, are, are you having fun? Mm-hmm. And they'll all stop and look at me. I've never yet had one say, oh, oh yeah, I'm having fun. They're all like, no, no. So let me ask you, Zach, uh, you, you, I love the fact that uh, you're, you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan. And you're pretty hardcore, let's be honest. And, and you, it, it, this is a season of Super Bowls and all that. So I, so need, much I of, need a program for my sports addiction. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, like, you got, people think I'm a to. nut. 
<laughs> well, actually, I put, you're go to the Sixers, you're Sixers and the Eagles, and you love it, man. You're you have right? no idea. My whole life, I mean, like, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's not. I've, I've Eagles and season and Sixers season tickets, and I don't no. live in Philadelphia, and I, that'll just tell you, like, and that the, they'll the speak level it right of, there. Yeah. yeah. So it, well, okay. So the NFL, for example, a lot yeah. of that tailgating culture is built around alcohol. I mean, I'm just curious, is how do you do that? I love this question, man. I love it because, again, and I might be coloring outside the lines on this one, and there are probably a lot of people in this world that disagree with me. But my answer to that question is like, how do I tailgate? How do I go to bars? How do I, you know, just like anyone else. Mm-hmm. And there is a movement to create sober events, and I understand that, right? Mm-hmm. I, I get that, and 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 there are some folks out there who are just going to feel more comfortable walking right. into an event that is sober. That said, for me, what I try to coach the young men and women that I work with, or even the C-suite executive that I'm talking to about sobriety, mm-hmm. is that you can live the exact same life that you had previously. So you can go play golf, you can go out to the tailgate, you can go to the concert, you can do all these things sober so long as you put your recovery first and you really do the work. And so for me, I do the same shit I did when I was drinking. I get down to the stadium early, I meet up with friends, I eat good food, we laugh, I might have a cigar, whatever it is, you know? Mm. I go to the game, win, lose, whatever, get home. The difference is on Monday morning, I feel great, you know? And I remember everything that happened. Um, so I do, I have a big desire to show people who are working towards recovery that you can still run in some of the same circles. And now obviously, look, you have a friend that is doing a bunch of drugs. You're probably not going to want to be hanging out with them, but, um, there is a life that is available and exists where, you know, we can be out there doing the same stuff that we were doing before so long as you know, the work is getting done. And that's the hard part, right? That's the hard part. That might be the best answer I've heard. And I do a fair amount. I'm like you. I get in a lot of recovery circles. I think particularly for our college students, Alexis, like, Zach, that's what scare, That's what keeps them so often. They're so afraid of going to treatment, or they're so afraid of putting a scarlet letter, because they they're afraid that it will separate them from everybody else. That it will separate them from the fun. I think Zach, you have just spoken a truth. And like like you said, like for some people, they just need sober only events. But but students will tell me, for example. I don't really want to go to the sober tailgate. I want to go to a tailgate and I don't want to drink, but I'm not sure I want to go stand under a flag. That's a label for me, you know, and it's different for everybody, but you have spoken a truth there that I think in this movement of how do we reach students in high schools and colleges where they are, I think it has to start with that. Um, They not only can, be on the so-called, so-called cool side, they might be – my son Hudson, for example, he's cooler than he ever was. You right. know, he's fly fishing. He's so full of joy. He's – I mean, he was pretending trying to be cool, I think, in college, but he wasn't, you know. Um, I heard him well, saying – I mean, yeah. I heard him no, saying no, I, a panel once. Sorry, go sorry, sorry. I heard him saying a panel once, and I want to hear what you're going to say. I heard him saying a panel once. He said um, 
when I would walk to a class, to class, Zach, when I was a sophomore, he was a sophomore. He said, when I would walk to class, um, I thought all the students liked me because they were all nodding at me and smiling. Hey, man, yeah, I only realized in sobriety that they were all nodding at me because I'd been selling them weed. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And like, what kind of what kind of legacy is that? Right. Right. Like, right. That's not that's not going to be eulogized. So he was an amazing pot dealer. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. But uh, I, I just like the number one, one of the, the first things that people want to know when they get sober is how do I date? How do I date? Right. No girl, no guy is going to like me if I don't drink. How am I going to get married if I'm not able to have a glass of champagne? And that's a legitimate concern for the families too. the parents. I mean, you, you wouldn't believe how much stock because they they think about how other families are viewing them. And I say, and, and this is my lived experience, if I've been on a thousand dates in, in my 11 years sober, and I'm just using numbers, <laughs> maybe one, maybe one or two of those women were like, I just can't, do, like if you're not gonna drink mm-hmm. this, this isn't gonna work out. 95% of them are like, this is intriguing. This is amazing. Wow. Maybe I, maybe I should look at the way I, and, and, and they end up liking you more. Like, right. what do they say? I mean, it's, again, cheesy, but like your vibe attracts your tribe, right? Like I, I came to the realization that I don't want to meet my wife at a bar at 2 a.m. I want to meet my, uh, on a Saturday night. Like I want to meet my wife at nine o'clock in the morning yeah. in a yoga class. You know, like, it's just like, and so, like, just it's a shift in thinking. It's a pivot, um, not just for the the people that are struggling, but for the families too. Like, families are so ashamed. They're so ashamed. Mm-hmm. My kids in treatment. What am I going to tell my friends? What am I going to tell the the people at the church? What am I going to tell the people, you know, at work? Like, you don't have to tell them anything. It's not your story. Your yes. child will dictate that, right? Like, or whatever it is. And when it's time, you're going to find that. You're surrounded by all your friends and neighbors who've been battling the very same thing. They were just trying to keep it a secret, like you. Yeah. I so mean, what the, about for you? I mean, do you do yeah. you find yourself? I mean, you're living your life the same way you always did, or no? I mean, so so I, that's a great question. Um, now I am. Mm-hmm. At first, Zach, it was uncomfortable for me, and at first, I didn't know how to go to a party. And I, I'm people. I think. Well, people tell me they think I'm social, so uh, that's what they think. I hear that a lot. Um, but I didn't feel very social because I had been trained in my mind since I was 14 years old that if you went to a party, you went with your brain a little bit numbed, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But now, so it, it was a learning process because I, I agree with you. I desperately wanted my life, and I wanted a better life than I had before, So I realized that I had to learn and take some steps. But so I'll answer it like I wanted it and now I have it. I go anywhere I want to go and I think I'm more social than I was because when I see you, I'll look at you eyeball to eyeball and I'll hear everything you say and I'll feel everything you feel, right? But it took me – it's like, uh, you know, it's like yoga. The first time you go – it's pulling on muscles that are a little uncomfortable, but you're learning how to sit into that a little bit or going to the gym or running. 
for me, it was muscle therapy. I had to get stronger in it. And I'm stronger today than I was five years ago and so forth and so on. And I think I'll be stronger in five years. There's a big concert coming in our community in the spring. And it's, to be honest, there's going to be a lot of alcohol, a lot of other things, but it's a bigger concert than we've had here. And my wife's like, you want to go? Five years ago, I said, no, but Mm -hmm. I'm going. I'm going. So there's my answer. I agree with you. That's why I loved your answer so much. That applies to me. I think that applies so much to students because the students I talk to, they really don't want the life they're living. They are absolutely scared to death to get there because they don't want to be alone. The night my William died of an accidental drug overdose, I could see his messages and everything. And he was starting to really do well in Mm -hmm. recovery, but he was alone. He'd gotten off work and a friend said, hey, you want to go out? He just didn't know how to do it. But the aloneness is what drove the unfortunate result. Yeah, I mean, they say the opposite of addiction is is not sobriety, right? It's connection, right? Like that's that's you, you see that a lot. And, you know, I, I believe there's a lot of pathways to recovery. And this has nothing to do with how I personally stay sober. But if you look at if you look at something like AA, right, Um AA has been around since the 1930s and it's, you know, there's a lot of opinions around AA and 12 step recovery in general. But what I've seen in my work is that, you know, AA teaches people who are new to this process um, a lot about what we don't know how to do. It teaches you to show up early, stay late, sit in the front, get phone numbers, connect to people, say yes. You know, and these are all things that were really hard for me to do when I was out there. Like, I, I wasn't on time for anything. Hmm. I didn't have any real meaningful connection. And, like, when you're telling your story right there, like, that that about William, man, it's like, hmm. it, and I remember reading it. Like, it's just, it, 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 it touches me on a level that didn't exist when I was getting high. Hmm. You know, it just didn't exist. And so, like, that, the human connection... It's just so important. And it's just, it's taught me like, I don't need to like everyone. Like everyone I meet is not going to be my best friend, but I got to love everyone because I have no idea what's going on at their home, in their right. life. And, and that's what I try to live by. That's what I try to live by. So this family uh, recovery meeting, first of all, congratulations on your, I, I love that you're, 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 you're not just involved on making things happen. You're involved in the actual happening, <laughs> you know. So this, like, uh, is this a twelve-step based program? I'm just curious, or, or is it more conversational? Like, what, 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 what happens in that dynamic of that meeting? I'm, I'm laughing because my both my coach and my therapist, if they heard what you just said about like you're involved in the making in the hat, like, <laughs> I don't know how I find the time for it all, but I do I don't because either. at the end of the day, like I care so deeply. Like if I had it my way, I'd be I'd be in it with the clients and the families every day. Hmm. Um, no, we certainly. I mean, look, we 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 pulled a lot of what we do from from twelve step recovery. We also subscribe to the idea that. There are multiple pathways to recovery. There's a lot of different um, ways that someone can get to the finish line. And we try to present our families and their loved ones with, you know, with with options. I mean, like, you know, for for family members, when I meet with them, you know, obviously we we suggest uh, 
general family support groups. We suggest Al-Anon. We suggest that they have their own therapist that, you know, can, they, they can talk to. Um, we suggest that they make friends and connections with other families who are going through it. Um, so we try to just utilize our experience yeah. from, from both the professional and personal, um, life doing it, uh, and, and, and help them see that it truly is a family illness. And I know for a fact, so like if this podcast is really geared towards families and the people listening right now are parents, mm -hmm. then the thing that I think that I would say that really hit me between the eyes is I, when I started doing the family group about six months ago as an effort to get more involved with our families, I did it a couple of weeks and then I got home one night and I was sitting in my bed and I was like, why the hell is all the response I'm getting so positive? Like every family on this call is so, so grateful and so thank you for release and thank you for my case manager and thank you for this. And I'm like, I know the numbers aren't this good. I know the numbers. Like we, we're not this good. I love to think we do a good job, but like we're not this good. And so I pulled up, I pulled up our client list and then I pulled up the families who were in attendance and I started matching them up and I started to realize the families that were showing up and doing the work had children that were also showing up and doing the work. Mm. And the families that weren't on the call, that weren't doing the work, those were the kids or spouses or whatever it was that were struggling. So there's a direct correlation between Absolutely. when the family chooses to dig in and do the work and the mm. outcome for the identified patient. And so like for a family member, it might not feel like there's anything that you need to work on. I get it. You're, you're perfect. And now that your kid is away, you're going to, you're going to be fine. But the mm -hmm. truth is now's the time to even work harder, you yeah. know, and that doesn't always sit well with the families, but it's the truth. You know, it is the truth. And I appreciated your, again, I, I can't agree any more than what you just said in that statement. Number one, I love the fact that you're bringing what I'll call a collection of best practices. You're kind of curating and how this family meeting happens. What I find, two things, I have two things, and then I got a question for you. One, I, I find that some students, and I'm going to be very careful, I want to be very careful how I say this, because... um AA, for example, has saved not just some lives, but tens of thousands and millions of lives and is one of the most important, you know, entities around the world. And it will continue to be. I hear from a lot of students. This isn't me speaking. Mm -hmm. I hear from a lot of students who tell me they don't feel that, that some aspects of that model feel a little dated for them. And so what I take for that is it's amazing and it works. But what we have to realize both in the student family model and in the family model, it we may have to look at, you know, the, the connections, as you say, that's been the core of AA. We know that works. And it's the same thing that we have to help these students find. When they're connected with their family, they get better outcomes. When they're connected with peers who support them, they get better outcomes. And that's what I've really tried to help students that I've been engaged with is try not to obsess over the name of this thing or that maybe just, just try to get the, the principle of it, right? And I think that's uh, the essence of a lot of what you're doing around release, and uh, that's fantastic. So then in 2019, uh, the you've got release, recovery, growing, expanding how it serves individuals and families, and then you open the 
Release Recovery Foundation. Uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, what the foundation is about and what's the diff- what, what's the aim of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, for, I love what you just said, and like, I think what I've come to realize is I'm not God. Like, I'm just not God. As much as I love to think I am, like, I'm not yeah. I'm not going to get anyone drunk and I'm not going to get anyone sober. No. I'm just not. I mean, not. that's just that's the right. truth of my existence. Um, so why not give people options, right? Mm-hmm. And share my personal experience where I think it can be valuable. Um, so the foundation, yeah, the timing was crazy. Uh, I think... So in 2019, I've been doing this work in and around New York City for seven or eight years, which so and and naturally, for whatever reason, I fell into a world where I was, you know, I was really providing services and helping like the the middle upper class, right? The people that could really afford a high end service. And there was something tugging at me to say, like, you got to cast a wider net here. You got to you got to help the people that really can't afford it. And so we got the 501 late December 2019. And then, of course, in March of 2020, COVID hit. So it's like our first events canceled. And what are we even doing? And, you know, how how life goes, like you keep showing up, you keep saying, yes, I get this phone call. I go on television and, you know, um, I come off of that experience. And, and like there's this wave of people who want to help. There's this wave of people that say, like, my brother, my sister, my aunt, my daughter, uh, how do we how do we donate? How do we? And, and, and so, like we happen to have this, this 501 and, and we started raising money to really be Robin Hood. Like, like, you know, like pay for people to get treatment that truly wow. can't afford it. And so we, um, we really focus on building community. That's like the, our two pillars are like obviously raising funds so people can access care. And then the other one is building community and, and, and making, you know, sobriety look sexy and, and, and look attractive to the people that need it. And it's been unbelievable. I mean, last year we had uh, we had a hundred people run the New York City Marathon with our name on their chest, and we raised almost a million dollars. Wow! Which is uh, yeah, it was it was wow. really cool. We're having our first gala in New York City in in, in May, which you guys will get an invite to. And, uh, we need Alexis. I, I think we we need to get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and so and so like, and we've also focused on. So there was really two, we have a DEI fund with, with the treatment center down in Maryland, Maryland, which uh, focuses on providing funds to the black and brown community wow. um, because they, they are historically underserved. That's what, you know, like when I showed up in treatment, if I'm just being blunt, like I was a white dude amongst a bunch of other white dudes and, and 80% of that campus were white men, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I, I saw it. And then the other group of people is the, um, the LGBTQIA plus community, uh, again, just historically underserved. So we have two funds that really focuses on helping um, individuals that identify in those groups. And then we will do, you know, one-off scholarships. Um, I, I just approved one this morning for someone to get some sober living up in Connecticut. So wow. it's beautiful work. It's beautiful work. Yeah. Oh, listen, when you're talking about underserved individuals, you know, I tell people, I say, look, I've been fortunate to get in a lot of treatment centers around the country. I've been able to get in schools and places to see 
you know, what kind of services are available. And certainly on college campuses, there's equitable services here at the, you know, University of Mississippi, where uh, I'm based. We have the William McGee Center named after my late son, for example. But you just said an important point. You, you, If you travel this country and look at treatment centers, uh, this disease is quite equitable. It knows no boundaries. It impacts mm-hmm. every human, you know, potentially walking this earth. It knows no boundaries. The treatment that's available across this country, now there's a different story. I get in there and I see a whole lot of faces that look like mine and yours. I love that you're really taking the next step of how, how do we begin to – because it feels to me, Zach, like there's a lot of growth opportunity for, for that very same thing because I, I know a lot of others besides us feel that same way. Yeah, the treatment world has changed and, and – you know, I'm going to make some assumptions on you and say that you're probably a pretty decent businessman. You've probably seen the way that the field of, you know, mental health and substance use treatment has changed over the past 10 years. There's a lot of private equity money coming in. There's a lot of people getting involved that don't know how to spell addiction, you know, and, and that has really uh, motivated me and my peers to kind of get out in front of this thing as young leaders in this world, because we're going to really carry the torch into the next generation of treatment providers. And there's a way to do this that's right and ethical and above board. And there's a way to do that. That's, that that's really grimy and dirty and, 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 and gross. Um, and there's, you know, if you put in a, and that's another thing for families that like the, the, the call that I date, like the one that I get, that I want to get from a family is the day zero call. I want to get that family who knows nothing about this thing Mm. so that I can help guide them. Not the family that's been Googling, you know, treatment centers for the last 90 days because they're probably just filled up with so much garbage and, Mm. and, and really confused and really scared. Um, So I agree with you. I mean, like we, we have a, we have a duty to serve and to, continue to try to break down walls and barriers in this work because you know they say what like from park ab from park bench to park ab is something they say in new york city like it's gonna affect an, a, a, everyone you know it, mm-hmm. in between um and that's my story man i'm a i'm a i'm a i'm one of five i grew up in a beautiful home in south jersey i never wanted for anything and you know i ended up bottoming out in camden new jersey with a needle in my arm and and you know, so like, who's to say it can't happen to anyone? Right. Zach Clark, what an amazing story. The thing I love about a forum like the Mayo Lab podcast is this is a beginning. This has been so incredible to hear your story, to hear the work you're doing at Release Recovery, the Release Recovery Foundation, and in other areas. Uh, but I think it's a beginning, and I, I look, we look forward to hosting you on the University of Mississippi campus and uh, seeing where we can dig in and find some synergy to do some, uh, you know, all dig in and try to find solutions for students and families. No, yeah, my mind's already running, David. I see see a world where we're, you know, on stage somewhere and you're telling the story from a father's perspective and I'm telling the story from a son's perspective and, you know, whatever it is. Because I just, I know that's where the juice is. I mean... The best doctors in the world, you know, haven't haven't been able to kind of quote unquote figure this thing out. If yeah. there was a pill, 
if there was a pill, I would have made it, and I would have been flying down there to see you guys on my private <laughs> on my private jet today because I would I would have monetized it. But there's not a pill. There's so, not a pill. There's you know, not shoulder a pill. to shoulder, brother. We get to keep doing this, and I'm just so grateful to you and to yeah. be the first guest. That's uh, no yeah. one else will ever be able to say that. So yeah, you've made it as you've made it as the last one standing before. This isn't the first time, but uh-huh. but around this subject on this thing. You out of everybody in the country, and I'm so glad uh, we made the right choice, and we look forward to seeing everywhere this goes from here. Zach Clark, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Mayo Lab Podcast. The Mayo Lab Podcast is produced by Dr. Natasha Jeter, Dr. Megan Rosenthal, David McGee, Alexis Lee, and Slade Lewis. This podcast was recorded at Broadcast Studio in Oxford, Mississippi. The show was mixed and mastered by Clay Jones, and our original music was composed by Slade Lewis. The Mayo Lab podcast is brought to you by the William McGee Institute for Student Wellbeing. For more information on the Mayo Lab, head over to themayolab.com and follow us on social media at the Mayo Lab. If you enjoyed listening to the Mayo Lab podcast with David McGee, we need your help. Tell others about it. And we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. This podcast represents the opinions of David McGee and guests of the show. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for the medical advice of a licensed counselor or physician. The listener should consult with their mental health professional in any matters relating to his or her health or the health of a child.